Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible 6 Fallout is over. A storm is coming. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? The end you always feared is coming. And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout of all your good intentions. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. This is the CIA's mission. If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. Mission Impossible 6 Fallout, Andy. This is, uh, I don't know if you knew this, it's the sixth of the Mission Impossible uh, cinematic universe. And, well, I think uh, you're the only one who actually includes the six in it, but it's good to know just so people remember there have been yeah, five previous. Right. There are probably few previous ones. Are you disappointed that they didn't like take a letter in Fallout and like turn it into a six, kind of do the whole thing? Like, let's replace a letter with six. But then you like six seems like it would need to be a G or a B. Yeah. I mean, I, they could have done an, a goofy A depending on the typeface that they would have done. It would have been perfect for Ghost Protocol because then the six could have been the yeah, G. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. They could have done Ghost G4 OST Protocol. Let's rewrite all the titles for the I mission. mean, are, are we talking we're going to rewrite all? <laughs> I feel like that's the road we're going down right now. <laughs> it's a very special episode where it's just typography. Awesome. Yes. People will love that. Exactly. Uh, okay, so we are talking about Mission Impossible 6 Fallout. This is the uh, continuation of our Solomon Lane uh, villain story. And uh, another continuation, strangely, of getting McHugh, Chris McQuarrie, back on to uh, direct a second time in a row. It's kind of an interesting thing. We've had different directors, different styles for the other movies until this pair, five and six, where we have two um, of the same uh, team. And also, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh what do you where do you stand on how this movie effectively levels up the movies that come before it? I guess that's an assumptive question. Well, no. I I think that this film is really doing a great job. I I feel like this was the film where Macquarie and Cruz and you know, probably Abrams, uh, the other producers, Jake Myers, everyone who was kind of involved at that the uh, that upper above the line level probably sat down really trying to think about, OK, what has really worked in the past films? What hasn't worked? Let's not do that. But what has worked? And let's take that and amp it up. And I feel like they obviously know the stunts like people really enjoy seeing Tom Cruise doing all of his crazy stunts. I think, um, you know, people recognize that there is something interesting in his relationship with Julia. Let's bring her back back into it. There's always drama with the IMF. Let's make sure there's plenty of that. Let's make sure all the team is working. Let's really kind of amp up the global threats. 
And, uh, you know, we, we see all of those things as they're really trying to take things. I mean, even specifically, and I don't know if they were specifically looking at stuff like, wow, the opening of Mission Impossible 2, where you're hanging on the, the sides of the, the rocks at Dead, Dead Horse Point State Park is amazing. Let's have you hanging off rocks again here, but kind of amp that up as well and actually tie it into the story. I don't know if it went that far, but it certainly feels like it. And and that's something I, I really like about what they did here. Because, I mean, I know some people complain about the fact that the last film kind of has this foot chase as the finale. And they, they you know, in the scope of what we're getting in these Mission Impossible films, it felt a little less than something grander that we normally get in their big action sequences. And so they're like, well, hey, let's do another foot chase here, but we're going to even amp it up here. It's like everything was kind of like brought up to another level and, I don't know, tied into the story that I think everything became, uh, it just all worked really well. Yeah, I think so too. I think it does feel weirdly, it, it it's presented more seriously. Like it's presented in, I think, a more, even more grounded way. They've just been getting progressively more grounded to my eye. Like I watch this thing and it just feels like um, less fantastical in some ways. We still have the opening, the, you know, you, we get the your mission should you choose to accept it kind of bit. Uh, because now uh, the IMF is, is, you know, is still here. Hunley's here. And so there are still systems in place like delivery of the tape recorder. And in this case, I, uh, the opening sequence of the tape recorder is really lovely because it is um, it's a I think it's a real homage to the old. I think it was the Craig reel to reel tape recorder that they used uh, as one of the models in the earlier film or in the earlier TV show. But this one has a pop up holo- like projector on it. And it is delivered in the Odyssey, the book, uh, the Odyssey. It's hidden in in a cutout in the book. I like all of that. I like that it's all a um, enough throwback to feel like it's acknowledging its history and uh, it's it's sort of capturing retro vintage future tech in a way that is really personally satisfying to me. Would you include the actual delivery of it in that as well, where it's a person coming to the door and it's secret code word exchange? I don't. What about you? I mean, I like that better than many of the other ones. I certainly like it better than the delivery of the Oakleys by missile on the cliffside in two. Like, I think it's it actually is. Again, it's a nod to spycraft. It feels like the code word exchange key exchange is is the kind of spycraft that I kind of look for in these movies. It's a Tinker Tailor soldier spy type stuff. There's something very fun about the the old phone booth in Ghost Protocol that's glitchy and uh that but it delivers the message and then kind of destroys itself. There's something fun about the random uh, camera that he gets out of the convenience store in in three. But at the same time, you know, we've kind of joked about this like they have a whole team of people just kind of setting up these ruses and making sure that Ethan gets his message and then gets rid they I they I'm assuming that they'd have to get rid of the evidence or just make sure nobody else picks it up or whatever. And so it's a whole thing that they have to do. So to a certain extent, I interestingly think that, you know, one is let's see, it's the it's the um flight attendant on the airplane, I believe, who delivers um Phelps the 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 message to listen to on the plane like you know, their code about the magazine or whatever although it wasn't as 
scripted like you say this, I say this, you say this, I say this. It was more just like, I think you really want to read this magazine or whatever it mm-hmm. is. But to a certain extent, the second film is probably the only other one that at least seemed somewhat realistic in the scope of, well, we got to get you a message. Let's just do it this way. We're going to literally hand deliver it to you. Yeah, right? we're literally hand delivering it. And so it, in a certain extent, like three and four, and uh, I can't even remember what happened in Rogue Nation. Because it was the one in the in the uh, listening booth that wasn't actually a your mission oh, yeah, should yeah. you choose to accept it. It was your mission. You know, you, you've already failed. We're killing everybody in, that you know. Yeah, right, right, right. It was. But again, that's another one of those ones. that's like they, they have to go to great lengths to have this whole thing installed in an actual business. And so. The way that it happens here, I just think fits into much more realistic spycraft. And to a certain extent, I like this. I, I really prefer, uh, I mean, I don't mind all that other stuff. It's really fun. But this one just feels like, okay, we're grounded now. We're, we're doing something in a way that makes sense. Yeah, it's like, it, it's all its own kind of special language of fantasy. Like, we, I get that it's all its special language of fantasy. What I like about this whole series is that from one to six, it has evolved uh, kind of with me, right? And I remember loving the other movies when they came out and feeling some of them are a little bit more dated now than they ever have been. But this one, you know, we've reached this sort of peak uh, Mission Impossible for me, and it is my favorite right now. Like, it is, it. I find the the uh just the the look of the film the colors of the film the the uh production the camera work my god the camera work is i think just luscious in this movie uh particularly in the incredibly beautifully grounded uh driving sequence like chase sequence through paris which is gives me such a grand throwback to one of my favorites ronan but to so many other wonderful driving movies one of the the greats rendezvous is actually you know McHugh and tom cruise talk about rendezvous as inspiration for this movie and i remember watching rendezvous years ago thinking this is a movie this is another movie that needs to be continually be remade and i feel like they've they attempted at, at doing something like that um here it just feels great especially on the heels of the latest john wick driving which john wick is fantastic but but there were sequences in that you know in the circle around luck de triomphe that that felt keyed to me and i didn't get any of the keying uh in this movie and watching the behind the scenes of crews driving the wrong way through a maze of you know stunt drivers but a lot of stunt drivers um, at speed was extraordinary. So there's just a lot, I think, to celebrate in how this movie works their realism into the stunts. You know what I mean? Clearly, they're doing everything they can to find ways to shoot things as realistically as possible. And to a certain extent, I think uh, the John Wick franchise is a good comparison because they're doing that too. You know, Keanu Reeves is like Tom Cruise. If he can get in there, he will. I don't think he is quite as crazy as Tom Cruise, but he still is trying to do what he can to be in there so you can really see that it's him doing these sorts of things. And I think it ends up playing really well. And when you have that paired with a filmmaker who is doing everything they can to find ways to craft the shots, I think it makes those sequences that much more intense because it feels realistic. And I think for me, I mean, absolutely, I think driving through Paris is great. But for me, the real standout in the film is the halo jump, which is when they're leaping 25,000 feet over Paris to to come down, landing onto um, this building in, in Paris so they can sneak in and and confront Lark. 
meet up with the White Widow, like all of this sort of stuff. They have this whole plan. But to get there, they have to go through this whole process of of coming down in this particular way, because otherwise they couldn't get into the building. And the fact that they ended up shooting this in a shot that was two and a half minutes uncut is just this fantastic wonder. And it really starts from the moment like the, the back of the plane is open and you see Tom Cruise standing on the the edge of the of the uh, tail there looking out over the land below. And then we cut to him as he walks back because he's just seen the lightning storm. That's the start of our two and a half minutes. He walks back to Henry Cavill, says, now I don't think we should do this. The I think it's too much lightning. Cavill like pulls his oxygen out and then he goes and jumps and then Cruz goes and jumps. And all of this is a, a single shot. They shot this three times. Granted, they were doing it over um, United Arab Emirates instead of Paris. And then they had to digitally replace everything below. But they were actually going through the process of this. They did it three times because they wanted it to be right at sunset. And so they could only do it once a day. And they go through the whole process of shooting the, that whole sequence. I mean, it's just it's stunning to me that they they rehearsed it as much as they did and they practiced it. And they made a an incredibly compelling sequence that is completely real despite all of the other stuff added to it, as in like the storm and then the city below. I uh, absolutely agree with you on that. And I think I just want to add, like, it looks so good and the production design and costumes are so good. And they had to manufacture, they had to create, design and create these helmets that are at once props that are that just look great as part of the costume, but they are also functioning uh, and uh, completely test stress tested Halo you know, uh, drop helmets to protect the actors because that's what that that's how they were able to film it to light them diffuse lighting around their face. But they also had to deliver oxygen at just the right, you know, pure oxygen for, uh, you know, 25 minutes before they actually took off. And then they're I mean, it's just it was actually helping them breathe and live to be able to do this. And it was a dope prop. Like, I think that is very, very cool um, that they go to such lengths to to create this thing. And and so I do. I mean, I I believe it. I believe. I believe. And the stuff that they replaced, the digital stuff they replaced, you know, the lightning storm, creating the lightning storm. They did not wait for a lightning storm to actually <laughs> shoot this. Yeah. Uh, even as as they were waiting for that, like, what was it, 120 second window for this fall, right? Like there or, you know, 180 seconds. I think it was three minutes. So they timed it to shoot right at sunset, sunset and they had once a day, they had that three-minute window to actually get the right light. That's extraordinary patience and craftsmanship um, and a lot of pieces put into place. And it's Tom Cruise jumping this halo jump. Good God. And that's the thing. Like, when you are actually doing this and you're having the team training as much as they do to pull something like this off and you're seeing them really do it and you're going to do it as a oneer, and this is something that we've talked about a lot over the course of this franchise where they have done a lot of these various stunt sequences like Cruz talks about how he likes to make sure that they can actually do the whole thing in a single take so that they know it's all doable but then they chop it up. And oftentimes, like sometimes it works, but there have been a number of times where like, gosh, they've cut this so much that it it just ends up taking some of the reality out of it. So you don't even get a sense that this was something that really happened. And uh, I think to the detriment of some of the sequences, it hasn't uh, helped. But in the case of this, just choosing to shoot it this way and, and, and making sure that they can deliver the full thing, I think it's stunning. 
This one, uh, you know, again, uh, to celebrate sort of just the the physical prowess of Tom Cruise, um, we, the the there are a couple of pieces in this movie that were new to him, hearing him talk about what he had to do to learn to do this stuff. And the halo jump was one of them to make it look good and look real. And it was something that he hadn't done before because how often have we seen Tom Cruise need to halo jump? Um, so he had to learn to do that. The other one is learning to fly a helicopter. He's already an accomplished pilot, obviously, but he had never learned to fly a helicopter and worked for two years with Airbus um, on their helicopters to give him um, the skills to be able to fly his own stunt sequence in this movie. <laughs> that is crazy, Andy. Yeah crazy and they said at the end this here's a guy who probably ended up with 1500 to 2000 hours of of um flight time um and has the ability and the practice of somebody who has 10,000 hours of flight time under their belt like that is extraordinary extraordinary work to be able to do this and i believe every second of it i actually i love that helicopter sequence too and so pretty much uh, like there there's it's hard this is one of the movies that makes it really hard to pick a favorite sequence because uh, all of them are so extraordinary they they really are and that's i mean that is another fantastic sequence because they're they're doing such amazing things up and down as they fly and uh in a way that it just it's kind of uh terrifying like i've seen a lot of helicopter uh, you know, scenes with helicopters in films. And to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're fun. But then you watch kind of like a, a something like this, where you're like, oh, wow, this, um, they're doing something different here, just like the ups and downs. And I think a lot of it does boil down to when we're cutting to Tom Cruise flying it, like it really feels like you can see that he's, you know, handling the shift i don't know what you call that main thing the <laughs> all, stick. The, all of the sticks he's yeah. he's on the stick and but, the throttle but he's handling it in a way where it's um you, you can feel like he's actually really doing it and when you see like just the movement within the the helicopter itself it really feels like it's not just him on a green screen and it's it's not one of those movies where you see him doing it and then you cut to a really wide shot like you would see like you know with Roger Moore in James Bond or something and it's another actor his stunt double who's actually doing all the stuff and then it cuts to a close up of him on a green screen doing helicopter work and then it cuts to the wide shot of the stunt stunt man like we're not getting that it just it it all makes it feel incredibly realistic like, and for me, I think, aside from piloting it, but the whole thing when he first gets on it and he's like climbing up the rope under the helicopter as he's trying to get on it. And then he slips and he falls and he barely grabs onto the the payload underneath and then has to climb up the whole thing all over again. Like, it's just you can tell that's Tom Cruise. He falls. Yeah, you can tell. 45 feet. And it's just it's clear that it's Cruise doing that. And I think that's what makes it so exhilarating. Yeah, I, I I think that's a a really good one. I just uh, in terms of the helicopter and capturing the helicopter, the way they use such wide lenses, um, I think it's really unique because as you mentioned, like those close ups that you normally get in in helicopter things, they're really close, so you can actually see the actor and avoid glare and all those things. But in this case, 
they invented these racks to sit much further outside of the dome of the cockpit of the helicopter than you would normally expect in a movie so that you can see uh, that Tom Cruise is alone in this bubble of this helicopter. Like, he's alone in doing it. And I think every time you cut back to one of those shots uh, of him flying that helicopter, particularly in the corkscrew at the end, it is just an extraordinary just uh, the feeling of exhilaration knowing that he is he has done this thing i uh, the hang is is troublesome and uh, to watch because every time i watch it it feels legit it feels more real and when you hear the behind the scenes where uh, you know they McHugh says you know i think we had a pa on the radio saying oh my god i think we just lost tom cruise because he had fallen behind the thing from the 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 dangly the dangly bit I don't know what it was. What the big white, like laundry, I guess it was laundry day. (laughs) It's just a big net full of like sheets and towels. (laughs) Well, I I kept asking myself that. I'm like, the payload, what are they taking? What What is is their payload? payload? Like, is it a big bag of money? Are they Uncle Scrooge McDuck? And then just like made off with with, like a big bag of money that they're hanging under the plane. Like, I never quite could figure out what the payload was. But it just was something that needed to be hanging so that we could see him hanging from it. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's obviously he's secured and that was cleaned up digitally afterward. He has a a rope. But to watch him do the practice and running toward the rope as the helicopter takes off and grabbing onto it. I mean, you can see that he is while he is protected in that if he were to really fall, he would hang from his waist. Um there is slack in that line. Like, it's not like he is being propelled at all by this thing. So here's a guy who's actually physically capable of climbing that rope in the air, in the cold. I mean, this one, it's, it's supposed to be cashmere. They were filming it in New Zealand. Um, and it was extraordinary, like, hearing him talk about just like, how cold his fingers were and how cold, like, I... That's one of the things that makes this movie so excellent is that it puts me in a place of realizing that's a thing I would just never do. Like, I think if I were in that place, I'd just like, crap, that helicopter got away. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's just a realization. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Just different. Different guys. Me and Tom. Drink up, folks. End of the world's yep. about to come. <laughs> End of the world's here. So, uh, <laughs> before we, so we've got a couple, since we're already into stunt sequences, before we get back to the movie and the grounded stuff, can we talk about just our, a, a, run through the other signature scenes and get those out of the way? Because did you watch the stunt that was cut in the nightclub? No. There's a sequence in the nightclub that I it legitimately surprised me that it was cut because they landed on the, on top of the nightclub and they got into the nightclub and then they had to figure out how to get across this giant ballroom and there were there were bisecting like high tension wires um across the the ballroom and he Tom Cruise gets out on one of these wires and hand over hand crawls across to the center and unscrews the tension mechanism from one of them to release one of the wires crawls all the way back releases another one gets up into the thing grabs a hold of what's his of of walker and swings both of them back across this entire thing and cuts the wire at just the right time so they smash through a window and into the into the uh wherever they needed to be on the other side of course we don't have any context of of how like where they were in the scope of this of of the the nightclub because the sequence was cut and they we have no ability to see like where they were going and how they got there but it is a crazy sequence that is at once like incredibly difficult because it is 
closer to the ground. Like it's it's there's no parachute. There's no nothing. There's so many obstacles to swing across this thing. And yet it's it's gone. And it felt like such an interesting um, major set piece in this movie that was eliminated. Like it's it's actually hard to watch because uh, I I just regret not being able to see these guys do it. Uh, It was lovely. But at at the same time, though, I don't I like I don't feel like I was missing anything like I, no. I it doesn't surprise me that they had something. But we see them arrive. They they get themselves into the kind of the upper uh, catwalks of this location. And then we cut we, the camera kind of comes down to it. And then the next time we see them, they're both in their tuxes and they're kind of walking through the crowd. Right. And that for me was fine. I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. If there was something there, it would have been fine. But knowing that we still had the bathroom fight and then the whole escape with the White Widow, like there were several other big moments that were going to be happening in this location. And I can see them saying, you know what, maybe we don't need all of those here. Right, right. Of course, of course. And it really is just the surprise to me was how I wonder how many other major action set pieces did they set up, like conceive, set up, produce and do and that we're missing. Like, I wonder the other movies, because it always seems to me in my head that if you're going to put the kind of resources toward building the rigging and the production setup to actually do one of these stunts, like you're only going to do that if you're serious about putting it in the movie. And I think that's an assumption that is challenged when I watch this particular sequence, because it's not a trivial sequence and it was just cut. Well, I suppose that's always the challenge of filmmaking, though, because when you're writing the script, everything seems necessary. When you're filming, everything seems necessary, but you're changing stuff that from the script and it's, it's the whole adage you know you're writing the movie three times the script and then when you're filming and then when you're editing and and you come to the edit and you're like gosh you know it's a fantastic sequence we just don't need it and i i feel like that happens all the time and we've seen we you know we've talked about so many things in so many different contexts of deleted scenes extended scenes over the years of doing this show and some of them were added back in in extended editions or director's cuts. Some of them weren't. But we've seen them in all levels of, of completion, you know, from being incredibly rough to being fully done. It's just cut for time or whatever the case may be. And so I do think it's just one of those things where, you know, you just it's it's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that does lead us to one of the I would say another significant set piece, even though it's not in the air at all, which is the bathroom fight, uh, the fight where uh, Ethan and Walker attempt to take on this uh, John Locke, Lark character, uh, supposedly at the time, John Lark. And um, and we get a fantastic sequence in the in, in the bathroom where they just beat the crap out of each other. And it's it is extraordinary and memorable and uh, gruesome all the same. Well, and I suppose the the thing that you get in a sequence like this is you get a sense of this spy who does insane, incredible things through all of these different films. But when it comes to just fist on fist, you know, pugilism, he's like he's not necessarily the best. Like he does a lot better when it's spycraft, when it's running, when it's tracking, when it's catching, like that sort of stuff. But when it comes to, okay, we're just going to stand here and take blows. Um, you know, he's not always going to be the strongest person there and, and does have to try coming up with other solutions. And so I found that to be 
an interesting element to kind of, you know, have as something that Ethan is dealing with, especially when paired with, you know, Henry Cavill built like Superman and uh, who is much more ready to take this down. But even then, Lark is clearly somebody who's ready to take them both on. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, that gives us the the uh, that dynamic in the bathroom is absolutely on par because both of these guys built differently they fight differently and the the way they choose to you know use their physicality in this uh, room is amazing and it gives us the signature cavill cock um where he cocks his arms you know what i'm talking about the cavill cock (laughs) i think some people are probably wishing you were talking about something else For six weeks, I've been looking forward to doing this show so I could say those words. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so it is uh, it, it's it's a funny uh, bit of Internet that that thing, that move of him cocking his arms uh, actually lived on. Hearing him talk about it, it just it, it doesn't seem like it was terribly planned. It's just a thing that his arms did, uh, which. Uh, the best stuff is always like that, I guess. Um, but I do, I absolutely adore this fight. It's so brutal. It is one of the fights that makes me think, like, all three of these guys, like, there's only one guy left at the end of this because in a couple of good hits, the, the other two are dead. Like, this this is so brutal uh, that that I just don't feel like any of them would have lasted that long. But it makes for great movie. Oh, my goodness. Great. It is an interesting sequence, though, because um, it does bring Ilsa back into the fold. But also it does make you wonder because it is so brutal, so violent, like everything is just getting torn apart in this bathroom. It does make you wonder if she didn't come in, where would things have ended? Because it certainly doesn't seem like they would have gone well. It just it's it's a it's a brutal, brutal fight. And it it works well. Um so and and again brings Ilsa back into the fold in yet again another capacity where she's working in a mysterious way opposite uh Hunt and what he's trying to accomplish and so uh, I I found that to be kind of fun with her where she again has to kind of as much as she doesn't want to work against Hunt and she's wearing a suit Right. Like she is is a professional like it's just a professional spy like she's not showing up as a sex symbol. And part of that is because structurally we already have a sex symbol in the next sequence. Like we're going to go see the White Widow and she's wearing sexy dress time this time. Uh, But the I I think it is also to my eye a sign that the relationship between Ethan and Ilsa is maturing and that she doesn't have to be a sex symbol. She's appreciated in terms of their relationship in different way. And she's used different. And I think more in a more sophisticated way in this movie. She is uh, very much the badass that she was in the last movie, but she's uh, even more so that they have they've sort of removed one sense in in her. And is she still attractive to Ethan? And that sort of tension that exists in this movie as a kind of a throwback to the last movie is, uh, I think, really satisfying to watch how he deals with that so much of this movie is uh, also dealing with the the issues of having two loves of his life and luther as much as says so later in the movie like he had julia and now he's got you and you need to walk away because ethan is a robot man um and you can't break his programming but she chooses not to walk away really curious 
Well, and that's, uh, you know, knowing that Ilsa is going to be continuing into the next two films, it does make you wonder how they're going to evolve her relationship with him over those uh, films and, and to kind of see what happens there. Because there is that sense that there is kind of like this resolution with the story with Julia, the real closure that we have at the end of this film. But it does kind of allow that door to open with Ilsa. And so... And, you know, Dead Reckoning at the time of recording hasn't come out, but we've seen the trailers and there does seem to be a close connection between Hunt and um, Ilsa that may be more than just uh, work buddies. So we'll see. We'll see exactly how it evolves. Yeah, it, it will be interesting because her like her complications of allegiance to state are absolved at the end of this movie. Right. Yeah. We get that, you know, her her card has been wiped clean with Ethan in a hospital bed. Yeah, so it does make you wonder, is she now officially IMF? Like, has she become part of the team? Because it always, every time we see her, it's with Ethan and Luther and Benji. And so it really seems like this is the team now. And so I, I, I again, I'm curious to see what they do in Dead Reckoning if if she has now kind of switched from, from MI6 to IMF. Right, right. On to the big driving sequence. The driving sequence is big because it's it's multifaceted, right? He they they start in a truck because this is the stealing of Lane. Lane is in the back of an armored car. And I just have to say, one of my favorite shots in the film is actually when the armored truck goes into the the river yeah. and it's sinking, and you have that fantastic shot where the camera is like locked down to the the floor of the truck. But the truck is clearly sinking at an angle where we see like the water is coming in at the most odd angle as we're watching it, like it's it's, um, you know, vertical or something. And it's just it's a crazy shot, but it just is so cool and disorienting. And uh, I just I love that they came up with a really interesting way to kind of film that that moment. The gimbal work in this movie is on lock because that's not the last time they do that kind of thing. The helicopter has when the helicopters are rolling down the mountain, they do some more of that. It is not as dramatic because uh, of the water, like the level of the water approaching Solomon Lane with the locked off camera is extraordinary. It's it's incredible. It's like super disorienting. And since you brought up like that, that particular shot and that camera work, that's the other piece that I think is done really well in this sequence, which is the high speed follow cam. When we have the camera behind whoever it is, it's either Ethan running or Ethan on a motorcycle or somebody and like somewhere running through an incredible long place with lots of repetitive patterns. We get it repeatedly in this movie, and it looks so good. It is one of those things that is just stylistically unique to this movie over the other movies. It's just handled really well, and it brings a new sense of motion and propulsion to these action sequences that I think are are unparalleled in the Mission Impossible universe, for sure. I, I know Ambulance is really the film where insane, cool drone work really kind of hit its stride. But do you know, were they using drone, any drones for anything like in this film? Do you, are you aware? I have to imagine we would have seen, I watched every minute of the behind the scenes stuff on this movie and there was no mention of drone and all of the camera stuff that I would otherwise have assumed would have been drones. They were showing cameras locked to motorcycles and cars. Like it just, it, it feels to me like, 
Like, this was not a drone movie. That will be interesting to see when we look at Dead Reckoning. I, I've yet to see any behind the scenes for it to know exactly how they've shot anything in that film, yeah. uh, other than the major, you know, motorcycle off the cliff sequence, which was completely detailed. But I am curious, which does have drone work, actually. So so I do know yeah. we will have at least that drone work in that film. But I am curious, like, as we watch the film, if we're going to have some sequences where we're like, oh, you know, I bet there was some drone work here. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder if they'd made this movie even today, that halo jump, like, would they have been able to replace, ever replace a human camera operator with a drone camera operator at 25,000 feet? Is there a, like, is there a way to match the physics of what you can get out of a human camera operator? That's, yeah. Because, I mean, they were talking about, when Tom Cruise talks about it, he says, I had to jump out. One of the things that you have to do as the actor is hit your mark and there's no mark on the floor and so he practiced for hours trying to guess what three feet is from his face to the camera lens because when he comes out of that thing the camera operator is already out backwards behind him and Cruz has to essentially stop his fall three feet from that human camera operator I don't think it'd be possible I really don't well yeah I mean the the trick with the the descent of the drone, I think, would make it very hard to do something like that because, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure it probably is doable, but there's also a weight difference and a drone is still going to be much more susceptible to the wind and everything that's hitting it. And also, maybe in the process of actually falling, may be harder to maneuver in a way that a person in a camera might be a little more responsive. So. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thought experiment. But I could see it happening on, you know, some of the scenes where it's a motorcycle chase through the city. And I could see that ambulance style drone work of a drone kind of, you know, chasing along behind it or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Because then you could even get it like up and over cars and things like that that we're not getting here. Ambulance is extraordinary. Like there, it's just uh, ambulance. It's, I mean, it's stunning. It's a stunningly it's, crafted film. Right. I can't like I can't think of it, it of any another movie that does anything the way those action sequences are shot because of the way they chose to use the drones and it's incredibly yeah. well thought out. Whatever you think of the story, it's it's an extraordinary experience watching that movie. So hundred percent violent agreement. I don't remember where we were. We were talking about uh, uh, the, driving, chase, the driving sequence. So that the, the gimbal scene, yes, amazing. That takes us to the truck chase. They jam the truck in the alley. They jump out of the front windshield. And now they're on motorcycles. They're on the uh, BMW R90 Scramblers. And once again, you know, hearing the stunt people talk about Tom Cruise saying like, who's going to who's going to drive these sequences? And they all look around and say, well, Tom Cruise is like the best stunt driver we have right now. Like he's <laughs> really good and proficient on all of this equipment. He goes from the motorcycle. It's an extraordinary motorcycle chase uh, through in and around the roundabout, through the Paris, through uh, the Paris opera. Like they do all these crazy locations. It's a greatest hits location for a uh, tour of Paris. And then they, they uh, manage. And to, then he crashes it. He crashes it. <laughs> oh God. I uh, that's uh, the one that I haven't seen the behind the scenes of. How do they do the crash? That's a great question. Was that Tom? No, it's just uh I if it I was then I'm sure he was on on wires or something. Like I would imagine there was some sort of rigging involved yeah. that would allow him to like hit something and then flip off. But I honestly I didn't see any behind the scenes on that either. Yeah. Uh and then he runs, drops in through the boat, they get out and they get in the car. 
And it, that is the old uh, BMW M5, which is an extraordinary, another extraordinary, uh, at this point, kind of classic automobile. And uh, Tom is driving that one. And this sequence absolves us of some of the handbrake turn violate physics violations that we had in the last movie, because this car does go in reverse downstairs. It's a wonderful sequence where Cruz is coming down this little, little like, pedestrian alley does a handbrake turn in an opening to in order so the car goes backwards off a set of stairs and lands on its its trunk and then he's facing almost the right way to be able to go forward which uh would have been a very hard thing to do had he not done that reverse uh that reverse turn he would have you know potentially risked wrecking the car into the wall across the street and uh i thought that was so fun to watch like it it just everything feels ronin grounded to me right like we haven't been able to use ronin as a marker for any of these movies yet uh, as a way that it makes me feel this is right there like this whole sequence a long sequence of just great driving yeah it really plays well and i think the nice thing about it is in in so many ways like sequences like this feel so integrated into the plot like it's not just okay we just got a chase to get from here to there it's like we got a chase but you know it's there's a process of first we're dealing with pulling lane out of the truck and and crafting it in a way where we're getting away from the white widow's uh brother and all of his goons who are going to kill everybody so we got to come up with this whole plan and then, of course, Luther and Benji are underwater, like pulling him out of this thing. Like there's a, a whole element that he's added to this. And then, of course, he's on the run with Walker. And then they've got to he's got to get to them in the boat and get to Lane. And now they're confronted by all of uh, the White Widow's goons who kill this or shoot this cop. And then, of course, Ilsa's there. And now she, you know, they take out all these guys and now Ilsa's trying to kill them. And it just kind of keeps amping up and kind of moving us forward as we're kind of like layering the complexities of this fight from beat to beat to beat. And it just it's it works really well. Yeah, it really does. And that that takes us to the underground. And now we get back into a little bit of story where we have we have a use of the mask. I think it's the this is just once we get in this movie. No, we we had the Wolf Blitzer. <gasps> wolf Blitzer. Oh, God, Wolf. I totally forgot the Wolf Blitzer shout out. Yeah. And and we had the attempted bathroom use, but yeah. it gets smashed by uh, their computer gets smashed and it's not working very well. And then, of course, it gets completely obliterated when Lark wakes up and uses it to beat them up. Which we should say is one of the markers of this movie. Like Tom Cruise stuff breaks all the time, including like he's he often is like underhand under uh, like powered in fights. The computers break like that's that's kind of a thing in this movie, too. So yeah, ahead, they're totally amping that up. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I do think like this use of the mask to kind of pull Walker out and re- get him to reveal who he really is, I think is great. But my question, I have a question about this for you based on the trailer and then based on his character Walker up to this point in the film, did you see him already as a villain or did you think he was just a, a good guy, but who was just in bad grace? Like he and, and hunt just clearly did not get along. Like, were you already kind of like, he just seems like a bad guy. Where were you? Do you remember when you first saw this? Well, I don't remember when I first saw it, but I do remember when he hands the phone over to his boss uh, and the phone is not broken, that was a clear sign that he is a bad guy to me. 
the the whole idea was he was he was giving them John Lark's phone from the bathroom, right? Yeah. When they got him, he said, here's all the data. But the phone that we had the close up shot in the bathroom and the phone had been smashed in the fight. The phone that he hands her later is, you know, that's an unbroken phone. But that's her Erica. Erica, right. And so you didn't think that that was just him being like covert CIA because they don't trust the IMF? No, I I thought it was him trying to trying to to, like get one up on Hunt. I thought he was a bad guy. I didn't know why, but I I thought, oh, he's a bad guy. Also, mustache. I mean, mustache. Come on. Well, it's it's funny because I, I don't know if it's an issue that this franchise has kind of built in to itself where you just really don't trust anybody. Like, I mean, we've kind of been trained to not trust any of the good guys that we have. And so we're always suspect of everybody. You know, they build it in with Jeremy Renner. We're like, he's suspect, although he ends up being a good guy. But we kind of, you know, we'd already had our learned our lesson from trusting um, the the um, uh, not Lawrence Fishburne's character, but the other one at uh, at IMF in three and it's like we keep having these people built into the story of like there's this there's this rogue good guy and so it just it almost becomes a non-surprise whether you thought he was bad or not and i'm in the same place as you where i'm like i don't think i thought he was bad but there was something about the way that he was kind of depicted in the trailers or even just up to this point where i just kind of didn't feel like I trusted him. So I probably was not surprised at all when he reveals that he's actually working with Solomon Lane and is Lark and has this whole plan. Yeah, there's a little bit, I guess, if we're going to be hypercritical about it, like there's a little bit of the of the um, sort of doyalist thinking that comes into it. So if you just approach this as from the perspective of economy of characters, when you bring in this brooding mustachioed guy who works for another agency, he's the outsider on the team. Of course, he's going to be suspect. Does it hold up? From the Watsonian perspective, which is like, does it hold up to the internal logic of the film? Does it ever take me out of the film that they're making assumptions that go too far? It doesn't for me, but I can see how somebody might lodge a complaint. That it's a little too simple. I, yeah, well, maybe, but I, I don't think it's a huge issue. I, I think that he's yeah. an interesting enough character. He's set up as kind of this... The CIA tough guy that, I mean, even uh, Hunley is just like, yeah, he's the one that they brought in because he is the one that, um, you know, stops these problems before they turn into something because he's violent, he's tough, and he's uh, he's kind of merciless. And so there is already this sense of that. And so I, I, I think I could have seen it play either way where he was a bad guy or he was a good guy who was just ready to kind of stop hunt in his craziness i think it could have played either way the fact that he ended up being lark really ended up it was like oh, okay i guess I, I kind of buy into all of that it wasn't too wasn't too crazy yeah yeah i agree with that and and i think that you know i i think cavill does great in the role i think he he fits and i i like i i think there's something fun seeing him in something like this after playing such a good guy with superman uh for as many films as he did that i i just think that he works well in this role i find him completely believable as this violent angry um kind of terrorist you know because also we've seen him as violent angry superman 
Well, that's true. That's kind of a leading indicator for him. He's not. He's Um, not quite the Christopher Reeve version, right? He's no Christopher Reeve. Uh, No, I'm with you. I think he's great. And and leading out of that sequence, like we have, I I think the ruse, the tricking of Walker in this sequence actually plays well for me. And it's it's a nice tight sequence that has a, a solid setup and a great resolution and involves a mask. And and I I love it. And I love it that. Uh, Angela Bassett is already a step ahead of them here. That that felt like a surprise that was kind of earned. And so, you know, it works. Well, and to a certain extent, he was, too. And that, I think, was an interesting element. Not that he knew that they were going to pull this trick where they were going to get him to reveal who he was, but just the fact that he was always ready for something else to happen. The fact that he had people on his side who were already yes. infiltrated into the CIA's hit team who were here that he could then pull into action so that they could actually take them down. Like that also shows a lot of forward thinking with him just to be on the ready. And I think yeah. as as much as everybody is in this sequence, like trying to prove that they're ahead of everyone else, it's the fact that he ended up having just the right number of people there to kind of like make it actually happen so that he could escape. Like that was actually a great surprise. And um, I I think it worked well seeing how he ended up affecting his escape, his and Lane's escape. Which takes us to the second to the last great chase, the last great foot chase uh, of the movie, which I, I believe has Tom Cruise running possibly more than any of the other movies altogether in terms of just straight distance. And that is a, a measure we haven't calculated, the total distance run by Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. He may have run a lot in four, but so much of it is in the sandstorm that we just don't really know we don't. exactly <laughs> we how far measure it. Went. I think by the time we see the Burj Khalifa again, it's pretty far away. Yeah. So I think he, I right. think he made it pretty far. You're but right. It's actually to, probably far. <laughs> This one, I, I love that it goes through a funeral. I love that it goes up onto the roofs. That one of my favorite moments in the film is when he's in the office and he's just screaming into the you know his earbud that no one else there sees. And I just imagine all these people like hearing him. I'm jumping out of a window. And just like the things that he's saying without knowing what's on the other side, I find that to be hilarious. And just watching these people and the woman who kind of like he takes her chair. It's just, it's one of the funniest, the funniest bits it out the film. a window. <laughs> oh, my God. And that uh, speaking of technology not working right, the fact that Benji, who is right now the guy in the chair with Luther sitting right across from him and watching Benji first having the rotation lock on the iPad set, <laughs> so he's looking at it upside down and then not looking at it in, two, in 3D mode. So he didn't know that Cruz was about to jump out of a, a window. He only said he needed to turn right. I thought it was a really great uh, uh, little bit of comedy in here. The other thing now, again, because of the joy of watching behind the scenes, like knowing that e- that Tom Cruise is acting as if Ethan Hunt doesn't want to jump out that window, when really I imagine Tom Cruise is probably totally okay jumping out that window. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it it all is very it, like that whole sequence is fun and it and it builds exceptionally. Like he actually catches up to to Lark and or Walker, however whatever we're calling him by this point in the film. But 
the fact that we end up having that confrontation between the two of them in an elevator with Lark in the elevator, Hunt hanging from the bottom of the elevator as it ascends to the top of the tower. And that's where we get the threat toward Julia there, where he's just like, we're getting this real sense of kind of exactly how how grand of a plan these villains have. And that's something I really have been liking with some of these films. I, I really liked it in four. And, uh, you know, with Lane, I think that we've really been getting that building the syndicate and here the apostles that kind of like have followed in the footsteps of the syndicate, seeing what they're doing, but leading to this place where they have this plan, they have these two plutonium pods, whatever we were calling them, and are going to, you know, kind of create these two nuclear uh, bombs, and they are now to a point where they're also going to be threatening Julia. Like, I, I just found that moment to be exceptionally crafted because it just suddenly it shifts the story in a way that we weren't expecting at all. When suddenly she's brought back in, you're like, oh, wow, okay, we're going, uh, we're bringing her back in, and now she's part of the uh, the people who are being threatened. Right, right. It's it's great that neither of them have any issue with the fact that Ethan is hanging from the bottom of this cage. Like, there is no question that Ethan will continue to hang on the bottom of this cage, even though in any other sequence they would have made that fact the 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 dramatic point. <laughs> and here yeah. he's just hanging, and the dramatic point is the threat, uh, which I think is delightful. And we didn't say only because we spent so much time in our members uh, pre-show, uh, the next real dot com slash membership. If you want to jump in and hear pre-shows, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, injuries that actors have sustained while making movies that ended up in the final cut. We didn't even talk about the fact that this, this roof chase is where Tom Cruise does a leap across between two buildings and breaks his ankle against the side of the 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 uh, one of the the receiving building, I guess, target. Uh, anyway, he breaks his ankle and that ended up in the movie. So uh, that's what the member pre-show was all about is other actors who've done similar crazy stuff. You should join. Fun times. Fun talks like that. Fun, fun times. And then they figure out, OK, we got to go to Kashmir and they go to Kashmir. And which is New Zealand, shot in New Zealand. They're in Kashmir and they're flying the helicopters and they find the bombs. New Zealand and Norway for the final. And Norway, that's cliff. right. You're yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. The I, I think another when you're looking at at uh, action fight sequences and in the special category of action fight sequences that don't involve Tom Cruise, I also really love the the fight sequence in the hut at the end with Lane, Benji, and Ilsa. I thought that was an incredibly intense sequence, and and she's uh, also an extraordinary, um, you know, extraordinarily charismatic action performer. Uh, and watching those those three fight and struggle together was, I thought, exhilarating. As Tom Cruise is running around yelling for Benji outside. Uh, no, Tom Cruise is in the helicopter. When that's happening. right, right. Tom Cruise is in. That's right. Tom Cruise is in the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Benji was yeah, running around calling for her because she was in there, and then he comes in and gets attacked by Lane and everything. Yeah, it's a fantastic. Though the, everything in Kashmir is great. You've got Luther defusing a bomb, and then Julia comes in to help him, and and just all of the just all of the tension of having to you know, pull the trigger out of the, or pull the pin out of the, yeah, the transmitter and then cutting the wires at the same time. Like all of that builds in a really uh, thrilling way leading to Tom Cruise hanging off a cliff, having just pulled the pin out of the thing. Like it was all exhilarating and it works really well. 
What did you think, though, about bringing Julia back into the story? Like, do you like the way that she's integrated into this story? She's got a new husband. She's got a new life. But she's doing this sort of work now and is in a place that is kind of like this critical point of this glacier that could potentially, like, kill thousands, millions of people because of the water that it provides to so many different countries. Like, did you like her being part of this pivotal relationship and and she's you know there only because of lark as this guardian angel who kind of like put her into the situation yeah i i mean i did because wait who was the guardian angel though in this because he's the uh, julia and her husband were talking about how this benefactor came and put them here right it was lark he he, you know walker says you know he was he's her guardian angel he mentions that when he's in the elevator and and like and he says that in context like hey i'm her guardian angel because if you show up, I'll kill her. So she's the only reason that I, that uh, or you're I'm the only reason she'll be alive um, or dead. And so he's kind of saying it in that capacity. But then later they say that they're there because this guardian angel came in and funded them fully to come and do all of this work. So Lark was very intentionally putting her into this place where he knew he was going to um, detonate these bombs as a way to kind of like further destroy Ethan. I should say by that point, that was really part of Lane's plot because we know Lane was really the one who was out to get uh, Hunt more than Lark necessarily was. And I'll be honest, like that that's how I read it, that it was Lane's initiative that got Julia to that place, right? That it was because Lane had the personal vendetta and the exchange that Lane that Walker has or Lark has with fake Lane sort of outs him that like, why are you why do you have such this personal thing going on? Why is this so personal to you? We have other stuff to do that. It was Lane who drove to have to put Julia in this place where she could be threatened and take her life in addition to to like summarily continue to ruin Ethan Hunt. And and so uh, to me. That was absolutely effective for for me to get her in there. Had she just been there accidentally, that would have been terrible. But because they at least spent a breath giving us some of that that motivation between these characters to put her in that place, that made logical sense to me. It plays well in, in her role as a nurse and then doing this sort of, uh, you know, yeah. uh, humanitarian work, I think works really well. And then having them go through this process of kind of spelling out this plan where Lark and Lane are the you know impetus to get her and her husband here just in time for all of this stuff to play out. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Did she settle after being married to Tom Cruise with her second husband? <laughs> well, I mean Wes Bentley is um I love you know, Wes Bentley. Let me just yeah. say I love Wes Bentley. Yeah. He's he's always great. I I feel like he's one of those actors who ends up kind of getting the shaft in a lot of performances that he ends up doing. Um you know, I I don't feel like he's been used quite as well as I'd like, but I uh, I think that he's fine, but yeah, when going from but to a certain extent, I mean, yeah, a step down perhaps from from Ethan Hunt. But at the same time, it's like you can see why she's probably looking for something that's a little more stable and sane. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's crazy. All right. Well, uh, that's the the, uh, they, the spoiler alert. You guys, uh, they defuse the bomb. Uh, we didn't talk about the last fight on the end sequence, but it does give me the qu- opportunity to ask you the question. Um, I it, I love the fight on the 
on the rock outcropping. That location is real. And they spared no expense to bring 150 people up to that location to film this fight and hanging these two guys off the side of that uh, rock face to kick each other. I did note that that was Henry Cavill on that fight, hanging off the side of that stuff, and all the behind the scenes, they strapped Henry Cavill to that thing. I did also note that in no point in the behind the scenes was there any indication that it was Henry Cavill doing a halo jump with Tom Cruise. Did you find that interesting? Are you saying that they said it wasn't him? No, I'm saying there was no indication that it was. My under- my From all the behind the scenes stuff, Cavill is on the plane, he's in the suit doing all the stuff, but he doesn't do the jump for any number of reasons. I, I guess I didn't see anything saying that he didn't, but I also don't see his name mentioned anywhere that he did. Yeah, which I think is an indicator. I, had he done that, they would have been talking a lot about it. Yeah. And I just, I, I get curious about the, you know, yeah. what are the behind the scenes that, that indicate, you know, it, when it, it, again, had it been me, it would have been, I'm not doing that jump. <laughs> you have fun. Like, it, enjoy doing that jump for those who want to do the jump. But uh, Well, I think there are actors who are perfectly willing to let their stunt performers do stuff yeah, for them. Do the work. And then there's Tom Cruise. And I think, you know, there's, there's a definite line between them. And I suppose in the scope of something that's following very specifically Tom Cruise for the bulk of it, I mean, he does catch up with Walker and connect him and all that sort of stuff. So, um, But Walker, largely, as he's doing this, is unconscious. And so to a certain extent, I suppose... There might have it might have made more sense to just have him uh, not not bother because again, as the actor, he's not actually doing anything other than just falling unconscious. Falling. Yeah, yeah. I also wonder how much it would have cost in an already extraordinary. Uh, the, what was the order of magnitude more expensive? Like how much more would it have cost to insure both Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill falling out of a plane from twenty five thousand feet? That's uh, interesting to me. Um, I just I was looking at longest shots in the franchise. I thought this was yes. interesting because we had this two and a half minute shot, two minutes and thirty three point four seconds to be exact. Um, in this film, weirdly, I looked at Cinemetrics, which we always love um, jumping into. Nobody has broken down Mission Impossible three or five, and I'm not exactly sure why. Other than I think somebody did the bridge sequence in Mission Impossible three, but not the entire film. Mission Impossible 1, the longest shot, and I, I didn't check where these are, um, so I can't say what the shot is, but in Mission Impossible 1, the longest shot is 48.8 seconds long. It's an hour and 12 minutes into the movie. Mission Impossible 2 has the shortest um, shots uh, in the film, or in the franchise. The longest, shortest long shots. Shortest longest shots? Is that what I would say? Uh, the <laughs> longest shot in Mission Impossible 2 is 26.1 seconds, about 41 minutes into the movie. Ghost Protocol, there's a 45.6 second shot, almost 42 minutes into the movie. And then other than the two and a half minute shot, the, the second longest is another 48.3 second shot, 15 minutes into the movie. So, yeah, it's interesting how one, four, and this all have a shot that's about 48 seconds long. And then the second one, it's like they couldn't even break 30 seconds. The uh, I can tell you the Mission Impossible 1 sequences, that's that's right around the, the uh, rappelling into the knock, to get the knock list. An hour, 12 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at the specific shot, but that's that's the action that's going on right there. Gotcha. I do think it's interesting just in the the way that directors choose to make their films and how this is one where, um, yeah, they, they chose to do that one or which was great for the franchise. 
You know, I, I think it is. And Andy, it goes back to something we've talked about in, in every one of these other movies is how well the movies capture the overall experience of make of, of performing these action sequences. Right. And sometimes you just can't stop the camera to actually do it justice. And I think that just as as the two minute and 33 second um, you know, extended shot in Fallout in the in the, the the parachute sequence does great justice to the performance of falling out of this plane that far and that fast. Um, you could say that it's a little bit jumpy by the time we get to the corkscrew at the end that we know behind the scenes he did that piloting and he made that shot, but it jumps around kind of a lot. It's edited pretty frenetically. And uh, you wonder, like, could they have made some more patient choices in editing to demonstrate further the 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 um, athleticism of its pilot uh, and and what they were actually doing? Because that corkscrew rotation is not a thing that I think people naturally have in their heads. Like it's hard to fill in the blanks of what's actually going on because how few how many of us have actually experienced it. And uh, and so I I think that might be. A, a thing of note, like this movie does a lot of that stuff really well. And sometimes, you know, maybe they could slow it down a little bit. Well, but yeah, to a certain extent, though, I feel like there is this level of uh, making sure that you're still telling the story like the story sure. isn't the stunt. And so you need to uh, in the edit bay go, OK, it's great to see this this stunt play out the way it is. But is it uh, does it help the pacing of the film? Is it is it giving us yeah. the energy we need here? Is it kind of keeping the story going? Are are we not spending enough time jumping back to Walker, and we need to because we need to know what's going on with him? And so I I, I just imagine that there are many levels of complexity, and it's probably hard. And we've talked about how some of the stunt sequences uh, over the course of the franchise have suffered because they have cut so much into it. And right. um, it's just, but it is one of those things where it does, I, I just imagine it's just, it's the nature of film. It's just a very complex beast trying to figure out how to do everything justice, you know? Well, and in that light, I mean, I, I stand by this movie as the best of, of the six so far in, in that specific regard. Yeah. For my experience with it. You know, just in the scope of, of, stunts and injuries and everything one thing we didn't mention in the result of uh tom's doing his own stunt jumping across and breaking his ankle it cost around 80 million dollars <laughs> so this is why they don't like actors doing their own stunts it's not that the actor is going to be hurt and yeah. uh you know all that it's that when it's the star of your show, you have to shut production down, and they had to pay yeah. the cast and crew for eight full weeks so that they wouldn't jump and take another job. And so with all of that, yeah, $80 million is what it cost. Now, insurance covered it. It didn't actually go into the budget, but still, like, that's exactly why you try to avoid those sorts of things. Yeah, God, that's extraordinary. <laughs> that is extraordinary. That's crazy. Um, the score, what do you think of the score of this one? We haven't talked specifically about the score of, um, you know, these movies in great depth. I'm curious how it hits you. This one's my favorite. I, I think that what Lauren Belf is doing here captures definitely like the the energy. I think it all starts from that fantastic uh, theme uh, from the TV show, which is so iconic and gives this propulsive drive anyway. But I think the way that all the different composers have integrated that has always been fun and thrilling. 
And I don't know, just what Lauren Balfe is doing here, I think, found a great way to kind of continue the propulsive energy in really exciting ways. And so I, I just I love this score. It's just uh, a highlight from for this film. I have to say, I think Lauren Balfe is is becoming one of my favorite composers for film. And because even in movies that I don't like, I'm finding myself listening to the score uh, uh, from these things again and and. I, I really love what he's been able to do. Some of the iconic ones, like his his work on the his Dark Materials show, the HBO show, is extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary. Fun to listen to, fun to hum, fun to play on the piano. Like we just we just love it. Uh, Luther, the Dungeons and Dragons score was great. It's like an hour and a half of music that, that like wonderful fantasy music that he put together that we listen to around here all the time. Um, it's just great. And uh, we just watched uh, Tetris not long ago on Apple TV Plus. Great, great throwback score with some wonderful, fun digital elements. So, and we should also say Lauren Balfe did the music to Ambulance. Come on. <laughs> it all comes full circle. I think I think Lauren Balfe used drones to make his score. <laughs> uh, just a couple uh, quick things that we didn't bring up yet, but are worth note. Uh, this is the film that had the whole mustache debacle with Henry Cavill because <laughs> yes. of the need to go back and reshoot scenes for Justice League and then the contract because uh, I think Macquarie said, yeah, sure, just shave it off. But then Paramount was like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, it, it's going to cost way too much money for us to wait around for that to grow back. And so that's uh, Justice League had to do the digital removal. Also, there was a salary dispute for Cruz because he wanted the same amount or more that he got from Universal for doing The Mummy. And so I, I just think that's interesting that after all this time, he still is in a place where he's having salary disputes with the studio because of just actors and yeah. studios, when, right. especially when they're dealing with ridiculous amounts of money. So, Yeah. I, do you know what he ended up getting paid for this movie? I don't. Because uh, I know he's one of those actors um, who gets who puts deals together where his paycheck may not be insanely huge, but uh, he always is cutting deals for I want you know fifty percent of of what you get in the Asian markets or or things like that. Yeah. Like he has all these back end deals where he gets a lot of payout on the back end because he knows that there are certain countries where he gets uh, where he draws a lot of audience let's see tom cruise was paid an upfront fee of 28 million for his role in this film he does a lot of crazy stuff great movie yeah well we'll be right back but first our credits The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Jacob Pietra, Soriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it award season. This one did better than the previous ones. 25 wins with 41 other nominations at the Art Guild Art Directors Guild Awards, the Excellence in Production Design Award for Contemporary Film. It lost to Crazy Rich Asians. 
the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards. It was nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Editing Music Score for a Feature Film, but lost to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Editing, Dialogue, and ADR for a Feature Film, but lost to Bohemian Rhapsody. And it was nominated also for Sound Effects and Foley for a Feature Film, but lost to A Quiet Place. At the Saturn Awards, it won Best Action Adventure Film. Tom Cruise was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Robert Downey Jr. in Endgame. Uh, the film was also nominated for Best Special Effects, but lost to Endgame. And it was nominated for Best Writing, but lost to A Quiet Place. This was an interesting one. The Location Managers Guild International Awards. That's new. I haven't heard of that one, but I'm not surprised. Judging by the fantastic locations in this film, though, I wasn't surprised that it won both it was nominated for. The Outstanding Film Commission, it won specifically for the New Zealand Film Commission, Film Otago Southland, for the great locations that they found to replace for Kashmir at the end of the film. And it won Outstanding Locations in a Contemporary Film. And where would we be if we weren't talking about the Tauros World Stunt Awards? This film won only two awards, surprisingly. Best Stunt Rigging. Uh, this was for when he's on the helicopter, grabs the rope, falls, climbs back up. They created a custom rig to uh, fit the helicopter in flight to do this whole scene. And, of course, Wade Eastwood won Best Stunt Coordinate Coordinator and or Second Unit Director for all of his great work, which he's been doing pretty consistently through a lot of these films. But that was it. No Best Fight. No best high work, no best stunt rigging, no best work with a vehicle, no best specialty stunt, no best overall stunt by a stunt woman, no hardest hit. So, yeah, it's just it's strange to me that in a, a film that I think features some of the best stuff going on in this franchise that it it did not get as many nominations. Yeah, that's that's the thing, mostly like I just feel like it should have been nominated and at least have been a part of the discussion because it's I mean, it's that good. It's that good and, and holds up so well. OK, how to do it at the box office. Well, McCory's second entry in the franchise cost $178 million, or $213.6 million in today's dollars. That makes it the second most expensive film in the franchise when adjusted for inflation. Uh, putting it behind number three. The movie opened July 27th, 2018, opposite Teen Titans Go to the Movies. This one took the number one spot, though, which it held for two weeks and stayed in the top ten for seven weeks before going on to earn $220 million domestically and $571.5 million internationally for a total gross of almost $950 million in today's dollars. That lands it in second in terms of adjusted total gross behind Mission Impossible 2 and an adjusted profit per finish minute of $5 million. Wow. Well, and it almost gets him to the billion dollar. Almost. almost. Uh, billion dollar box office for a single film. Fascinating. Uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, love this movie. And more than ever, I can't wait for Dead Reckoning Part One, Andy. I cannot wait. I, I can't either. You know, I will say just one thing that we brought up when we were talking about Ghost Protocol that we we're wondering, will they ever mention in context of the syndicate? Will they ever mention Cobalt, uh, Michael Nickvist's character, as being tied into all that? And he never has been brought up. And I've been kind of hoping that there would be some connection. Um, I still feel a little disappointed that there wasn't some tie uh, that it wasn't kind of like the, the syndicate is like this universe's specter or something. But, um, I, you know, I'm okay with it. I just, I, I feel like that's one of those things that I, I would have liked to have been connected in some capacity. But still, I love this film. It didn't need to be there for me to be happy with it. This film is just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. 
All right, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for our next movie, which will be released next month, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which will also be our July members bonus episode. of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong from everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. Letterboxd, Andy. Oh, Letterboxd. It's our favorite social media network for movie lovers. Uh, you know the drill. You head over there, you sign up, you get yourself an account, you start posting the movies you like, the movies you've seen, your star ratings, your hearts, if you have those uh, guilty pleasures, one star plus a heart. Oh, it's a guilty pleasure movie, chef's kiss. Uh, but if you really fall in love with it, you want to get rid of all those ads and support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes the thing, head over to thenextreel.com slash letterboxed, and we will save you 20%. Uh, you can also, if you're already on letterbox.com, when you check out, just use the code next real, same thing, uh, 20%. It works for renewals as well. We love it. You can find us, follow us. You can find the next real letterbox.com slash the next real. That's our HQ page. And you can see everything we're up to there, including our watch list for the next season starting in August. Andy, what are you going to do for this movie? I mean, you've already mentioned, but it's just hard to... Um, it's hard to find a lot of problems with this film. Like, I I might have some small quibbles with some of the past films that I still really love, but this film, to me, is like everything that this franchise has been building to. And it's funny, because this film is, in some capacity, so fittingly, potentially, a finale for this franchise. Like, I could see this really wrapping things up. We almost didn't need to go beyond this. And so I'm going to be really curious to see what Dead Reckoning does because I feel like this film so perfectly like encapsulated the franchise and tied things up so nicely that I, I feel like we could have just ended it. I love it. I can't wait to see where they go from here. Five stars and a heart. Easy. Me too. 
five stars in a heart, easy, absolutely. And I've this is. <laughs> I wish we had six stars uh, a, a little bit because I already have a five star uh, in in the series. I, but I I really really love it. I think it's fantastic. Well, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And as Pete said earlier, you can go to thenextreel.com slash membership and you can learn about our membership where you get bonus episodes, early access, ad-free, and extra content. All sorts of great stuff. So check it out. So what did you think about Mission Impossible Fallout? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. So we went in different directions this week. Where did you go? I went low. Oh, that makes me so sad. Is the bottom of the barrel worth looking at? I don't know. <laughs> There's not as many uh, to enjoy as I would like. It's just a lot of people just who just find the action boring or find Tom Cruise one note. You know, it's all the same sorts of things that you'd expect to find of people who just are not fans of either Tom Cruise or this sort of action movie or whatever. A lot of people just have those sorts of issues. Uh, but I have a half star by Patrick Starr. Um, it's not Patrick half star, though. It's Patrick Starr giving a Patrick half star. Half of star. himself. No half star, Patrick. Yes. Uh, who has this to say? One of the worst action movies of all time. So boring and everything is so lifeless. I wish there were more movies like The Last Night. <laughs> As in... Transformers, the last night. The last night. That, that, <laughs> unfortunately, Patrick, when you say something like that, it really, <laughs> it really negates everything that you just said leading oh, up my to that goodness. point. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I've got, I've, I got, I got a couple. Um, uh, uh, four and a half stars from Matt Singer. Tom Cruise is 56 years old, running at full speed across London rooftops like it's nothing. Yesterday, I severely twisted my ankle, lightly jogging on the sidewalk. What I'm saying is, movies are magic. And also, Tom Cruise may be an actual warlock. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, the uh, better Josh gives it a five star, saying, this series is literally about a clinically insane man with the best luck, and it's the greatest thing. That's probably pretty <laughs> close to to what's happening. Pretty close, pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.